0: How's everybody doing today? Happy Sabbath! Happy Sabbath! I'm I'm so excited to uh, give you this message today. That she's gonna, you know, she reads that 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 verse comes up again in the presentation. I could never read it as well, so you guys would all think, why don't you have her read it? So I'm gonna I'm gonna do what you're thinking ahead of time. Um, it, it's such a, a blessing to be here today to talk to you about God's holy word. Most of the time, you want somebody to get hip air and teach from the Bible. But how many times we ever hear a sermon about the Bible? And we accept the Bible as God's holy word, God's holy inerrant word, and we should. But I don't think many of us really understand how it came to be. And there's, you know, you're here how long? Because we got about 4,000 years to cover. So, everybody comfortable? I'm getting started early. So, um, I hope you had a good breakfast. But at any rate... Um, the, the Bible is, is an amazing, amazing book, but what, what a lot of Christians like to do is what I call the a la carte Christian. Ooh, I like that. Oh, I don't like that. And they pick the parts of the Bible they like, and they disregard the parts they don't. Well, when you do that, you're not really getting to know God the Father. You are creating a God that you want to be the Father, by picking out parts of the Bible. The entire Bible, every single word of the Bible is breathed out by God. Every bit of the Bible is 100% true and 100% accurate. And if you, if you take any parts out, you're not reading the Bible and you're, you're, you're disregarding who God is. So, um, so if you believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God and every word is breathed out by God, that's all you need to know and you need to stand on that. But we're going to talk a little bit about it. So we're going to start picking up that, those verses again because that is true. And, and what we got to be careful when we read verses of the Bible, we all love all Scripture is breathed out by God. We like that verse. But why did, why did Paul say that? Why did Paul say that? So that's why we do the first verses too. So Karen, could you come up and read it one more time because you do it a lot better than I do. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while all evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise from salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Thank you, Karen. I've got I've got I've got like an hour for her to calm down, so it'll be perfect. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of books written. There's a lot, a lot of books written. But there's only one Bible. And the Bible is the only place that you get God's word spoken by God. Every other book, if it isn't pointing to that book and helping you understand that book... Is meaningless, and God spoke in no other book other than the Bible. Vital to vital to understand. Now, there's another verse, and, and God kind of gave me this uh, this week in, in my my weekly Bible reading or my daily Bible reading. I, there was a verse in Isaiah. So, okay, Isaiah: the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. And you know what what Isaiah is saying there is, we'll get false teachings, we'll get fools out there saying all manner of things about God, that will fade away, but God's holy word will stand forever. So we talk about the Bible and, and how it came to be, you really have to start back to the beginning, you know, way back to the beginning, and how the Bible came to be. So where did the Bible start? The Bible started at the beginning of time because the stories were told from generation to generation. There is a whole, there's called the oral tradition. The oral tradition is how from Adam to Moses, the Bible was handed down. Now you're going to get the world telling you, well, how possibly could they have kept it intact and right all that time? Well, God was in charge, not people. And you have to accept that from the beginning. And secondly, when Moses started writing, he kind of had a little bit of an advantage, didn't he? He talked to God all the time. So, if if God had a problem with it, I think he would uh, straighten him out real quick. In fact, he did a lot of that with old Moses. So, let's uh, go to... This is a really cool fact. Moses, we know Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? But... We don't think Moses wrote anything before he got the Ten Commandments. Think about Moses. He wasn't raised in a Jewish house. He was raised um, in the Egyptian palace. He then went 40 years to Midian, where he certainly wasn't getting taught by Jewish scholars. He came back at the word of God. He did the plague thing, uh, struck down the greatest country in the planet, took his people out, then went up to Sinai. The first Evidence of anybody writing a word of the Bible is God's holy finger writing the Ten Commandments. And I I think it's kind of prophetic that God wrote the Ten Commandments and he wrote every word in the Bible after that. So so then Moses, we know he had kind of a 40-year sojourn through the desert. That's when he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And it's important to understand when we hear... When we as modern-day Christians, we hear them say the law, you know, when the the Bible refers to the law. We think the Ten Commandments. The law refers to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. The law is the Torah. It's all of that stuff. So, okay, so over the next 1,000 years, the next 1,000 years, all the books of the Old Testament are completed. The writing stopped at 400 B.C., and what happened is the Jewish scholars w- were in charge of the, uh, of the sacred writings. And as they came, they kept collecting them and collecting them. Now, something you've got to understand, it's, it's much different than the world would have you believe. There was a smoke-filled room somewhere with, a, with 100 uh, Jewish scholars. And they said, okay, I got this uh, funny little book called Habakkuk. Um, all in favor? And 51 guys raise their hand. All opposed? 49 guys raise their hand. The eyes have it. Habakkuk's in. That never happened. It never ever happened. The Old Testament was always accepted as Scripture from the beginning when it was written. It was always acknowledged, and we know it was acknowledged because Christ acknowledged it when He came. The, the Scriptures came together at the direction of God and at the hand of God, and written by people who God had write it. So here's our next slide. I love this slide because it breaks up the Old Testament books into their into their groupings as to what they do. You see Torah, that's the law, that's the first five books. Then you see the historical books. And then I, this is kind of an interesting fact. The poetic books, mostly written by Solomon. Um, if you look at it, it has Psalms, Proverbs, which is Solomon, um, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. These are all him. And then he did write some Psalms. We don't know really who wrote Job. And then you have the major prophets and then the minor prophets. You have five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. Do we think major prophets are better than minor prophets? (laughs) You know how those distinctions came? You're a major prophet if your book was big. You're a minor prophet if your book is small. So (laughs) they're, they're... their messages were equally powerful. They're just, uh, you, you know, there's the old, uh, there's an old joke we use in the law. Um, I would have written it shorter, but I didn't have time. <laughs> so to, to be concise in writing is, is a real skill. Uh, okay, so the next thing that came along were the Apocrypha books. These are hard, hard things to get your arms around, but you need to understand where they came from. The Apocrypha books started appearing after the 400-year cutoff of the Bible, of the Old Testament. They started appearing. Jewish rabbis and Jewish scholars kept the Apocrypha books but never considered them Scripture ever. The Apocrypha books were considered cultural books. They were considered great for history. No Jewish scholar ever, ever considered the Apocrypha books Scripture. But they were there. They were hanging around. Okay, so the next event that happened, is the Septuagint. If you do any Bible say, you're going to hear that expression. In between 250 and 200 B.C., the Septuagint was written. What that was was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Why did that happen? In the intertestamentary period, the country that ruled the world was Greece. Um, A minor little figure in history popped up in that time called Alexander the Great. Now, the Greeks had an interesting approach to, to uh, how they would conquer the world. Alexander had a hard, fast rule. You do not destroy libraries when you sack a town. You leave libraries in place. And it was important to them to understand as much as they could understand. So they found these old Jewish writings, and they translated it into Greek, and it's, that's the Septuagint. So now we've kind of have we're, we're going to close the uh, Old Testament portion of this presentation but we can't do that without addressing the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in a cave in Qumran. Qumran is by the Dead Sea in Israel and who the people who were the overseers of the scrolls at the time were these guys called the Essenes. They were some intense guys. They they were pure, they didn't, you know, they they, they didn't marry, they, they were hardcore intense guys. And they had known over the years that Israel had been sacked and run over by so many different powers, they wanted to hide the, the sacred scriptures. So they hid them in these caves of the Dead Seas. The the scriptures go back to 500 years BC that they found in the in the caves. What's the most important thing in 1947? they found that the Dead Sea Scrolls told them that the Bible they had then was correct and accurate, dissuading all these arguments that, well, we don't know what happened over all the years. The scripture we had in the, New, in the Old Testament in 1947 was the same as was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was a huge thing, and you know, thank God that he, he opened that up for us. It was, a, it was an amazing thing. So now we move to the New Testament. So now we're we're clear in the Old Testament, right? The sacred writings were written, God directed them, everybody was on the same page. They put them in these huge scrolls, they kept them in the temples, and they knew, and nobody took Apocrypha more serious than just history and, and, and culture. So now the New Testament is written. The New Testament is written from 45 to 100 AD, first century books. It was written. They were all written in Greek, and they were written in Greek because that was the language of educated people at that time. Um, Greece still had its implant on the world, so, although Rome had taken over. Even the Romans thought the Greeks were smart. So, in fact, uh, I'm not going to tell you that story. But <laughs> okay, I will. Um, um, the Romans always looked up. To the Greeks, even when Rome took over the world, they knew the Greeks were smarter than them. They knew the Greeks were better than them, and um, when I was uh, general counsel in the in the retail world, I used to equate it to this: the Greeks were Target, and the Romans were Walmart. <laughs> Because when we, when we dealt with, what we had a lot of business dealings with Walmart, they always looked up to Target. And they dominated Target. Target couldn't even play the same game as them. You know, why their there, 10 cents of every dollar was spent at Walmart. But they always wanted to be Target. Because um, they, they're cool. And, but um, at any rate, that's the same thing there. Although Rome was so dominant, they looked up to the Greeks. And if you wrote in Greek, you were obviously smart. So that's how they did it. Um, next slide, please. Now, this one is good. It shows you the uh, 27 books of the New Testament. The 27 books of the New Testament are all apostolic. And there's a a term used called apostolicity, which means either you had to be an apostle or connected to an apostle, one person removed. You could not be, I heard from a guy who heard from a guy. So if you look at all of the books of the New Testament, everybody's either an apostle or connected to an apostle. Mark was connected to Peter. Peter was Mark's source. Luke was connected to John. They weren't apostles. Everybody else pretty much was an apostle. Now, um, you wonder why a guy like me thinks so much of Paul. Look at this book. Yeah, look at this. Thirteen books of the New Testament were written by Paul. And, and then uh, all you legalists out there who love James so much, he had that book. Um, You know what I say to you guys? I say, uh, I'll see your James and raise you 13 Pauls. Those, you know, Paul and James live together. And the reason is, Paul is a theologian, and James is telling you how you should behave. And, And so all that should go away. But at any rate, Paul really dominates the New Testament. But again, it's very important to understand, nobody questioned these books. It was the same thing. It wasn't who thinks James should be in, who thinks this one should be in. These were books written by people connected to Jesus, and everybody acknowledged that. They were fine with that. And so these are your 27 books. Um, There's only one prophetic book in the New Testament as opposed to all those in the Old Testament. But again, you see why, if you're not a church of Paul, you're really not a New Testament church. You're not a, a new Christian church. Okay, so now we have those books done. We're sealed up. We've got our Old Testament, we've got our New Testament. And we've got the, um, the Apocrypha floating around. So what's the first attack on the church? Um, the first attack on the church comes in the 4th century. This is a guy everybody should know, every good Christian should know. This is Athanasius. Athanasius was, uh, his enemies called him the black dwarf. And the reason they called him that is because he was short and dark-skinned from Egypt. Um, they hated him. And the first thing he ran into was... A thing called arianism arianism said jesus had a beginning jesus was created and that is an appalling heresy that athanasius stood and fought and he fought it and he fought it and it took him a while for a while he stood alone and finally finally the church said you know what athanasius is right christ is god almighty he didn't have a beginning and uh, Athanasius' great quote was, "Those who maintain there was a time when the Son was not robbed God of His Word like plunderers." So all the all the church leaders who believe that were kind of driven out. So Athanasius had had a real um, real influence on the church, and people really really looked up to Athanasius. Now, Athanasius is is, is somebody to be admired, and it's funny how there's no real heresies in the church anymore that hadn't already occurred in the first 500 years. In fact, 1,700 years later, this church had to stand with Athanasius and drive out that heresy that was trying to be taught here. So we stood with Athanasius. Dave, how do you feel about that? Um, So then in 367, another, another thing happened. They started coming out with these later books, the book of Thomas or the book of this one or that one. Now, although they were claimed to be apostles, they weren't written by apostles because they were written in the, you know, second and third centuries. Athanasius again stood up and said, no, you're not. You are not adding books to the New Testament. We're stopping them here. So he wrote a letter and took a stand for the church and said, for the first time anywhere, the 27 books of the New Testament are the New Testament. Next one. The third synod, which is a church council of Carthage in 397, approves the New Testament canon, 27 books. So now you have your Bible. Again, you have the Apocrypha floating around out there, but the only books that were considered Scripture were the 39 old, 27 new, 66 books that we have today. So the next big development is the Catholic Church. Jerome writes the Latin Vulgate. If you do any Bible study, you'll always hear the Vulgate. Biblia Sacra, um, that, that is the Latin Bible. Now, it was important for Rome, the, the Church of Rome, to have things in Latin for this reason. They had spread throughout the world like the great political power that they wanted to be. But if you were in England, or if you're in Holland, or if you're in France, or you're in Germany, I didn't want to have to deal with you in all those languages. So in order to be a priest or a church leader, you had to be proficient in Latin. So, everything from Rome came in Latin. The Bible came in Latin. Communications came in Latin. So, if I'm a priest in Denmark, if I'm a priest in Germany, if I'm a priest in France, I speak Latin. That's how that was their one of their great um, efforts to control. So, the Bible written by Jerome also took a lot of liberties to make sure that the Bible concurred with Ro- Roman Catholic theology. One of the biggest things they did. Which was found repulsive by the reformers later, um, and I'll tell you there there was one priest in Germany about a thousand years later named Martin Luther, who really got good at Latin and called him out. So that kind of backfired on the old Latin thing. But at any rate, um, the the thing that offended a lot of the reformers when they went down and started looking at the original Greek and the original Hebrew. The Latin Bible in translated repent as do penance. Instead of saying repent, you must do penance because that's Catholic. That's what the Catholics do. You go to the priest, you confess, he has you do penance. Well, that's a big difference, isn't it? I mean, repent means, the the word in Greek means to turn around, completely change your life, have a change of heart, not do penance. So there, there were many things like that in the Latin Vulgate that that controlled. Okay, so the next thing that happened is people started translating the Bible into their own languages. Now, I didn't have a slide for fourth um, and fifth century or fifth and sixth century a Bible, so I gave you this just to give you the idea. They, they didn't have these back then, but at any rate, the Bibles were being translated in different languages. They had a, a Coptic version. They had an Ethiopian version. They had a um, an Armenian version. and of course, the Catholic Church could not stand for that. And the next Bible, and the next thing that happened was a Roman Catholic Church declares Latin as the only language for Scripture. There is no more accepted languages for Scripture other than Latin, the Latin we control from Rome and the translation we did in Rome. So the whole world sat for the next thousand years or so, or next 600 years, and the, they had another problem. The church on 1229, the Council of Toulouse, strictly forbids and prohibits lay people from owning a Bible. So, A, you can't own a Bible. And B, if you hear a Bible, it better be in Latin. And, and in fact, when I was a real young child, the church was, the, the, the service was in Latin. So it, it, was a, it was a very strange thing. I remember asking my mom, what are they saying? What does it mean? And she said, just say it. <laughs> you know? Okay, Christus Um, All right, so now we're going to take a turn as the English-speaking church we are to the English-speaking Bibles. The first guy who started writing the Bible in English is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, um, he, he was a, a, a very, very intense guy. He was great. Um, he, he took the position that the church was out of control, that the priests were plundering. He was a priest, but he said the priests are plundering. Those, they're not shepherding the people. They're plundering them. They're taking money from them. They're not shepherding them. They're not showing them the way. And he became immensely popular. And he decided, I'm going to start translating the Bible into English for my, for my flock. The problem was there was no printing press at that time, and that was one of the greatest gifts to the Catholic Church was there's no printing press because you couldn't spread the word around very quick. You had to handwrite it. So Wycliffe and his buddies started handwriting all, as, uh, translating as much as they could. The church hated him, but the church was afraid of him because he's becoming immensely popular. Well, before the church could kill him, he had uh, a, mass, a series of massive strokes at about the age of 54 and died. Undeterred, the church still wanted to get at him. So, next slide. In 1415, 31 years after Wycliffe's death, the Council of Contents meets, and they, they convict Wycliffe of 290 counts of heresy. He's dead, but they convict him of 290 counts of heresy. Then, and, and this is Wally's favorite slide, next one. 44 years after Wycliffe's death, they dig him up, get his bones, burn them into powder, and scatter him in the river. They're pretty mad at John. I, I really admire John. If you could get somebody that mad that long after your death, you've really done something. But you um, know, you think that's kind of strange or punitive. It, it shows you kind of the arrogance of the faith of that in those days. I remember when I was a young Catholic. I think they've changed it now, but you were not to be cremated. You had to be buried. Because they had a theology that at one point in life, your soul reunites with your body. And if your body's not there, your soul's got nowhere to go. So you hang around just being a soul without a body. Um, I don't know why God would do such a thing. But so they, in taking this act, they're depriving Wycliffe of that opportunity. So they think it's just silliness. But at any rate, they're really upset. So next we have this is. Excuse me, William Tyndale. William Tyndale, if you read an English Bible today, you owe it to William Tyndale. Tyndale was an incredible man. He was born and took over, uh, t- took his priesthood at the time of the Reformation. The Reformation started about 1515, and in 1525, you have Tyndale doing his English translation. Tyndale was a brilliant man. Um, he was educated at Cambridge. And he had a knack for language. He spoke every single language of Europe. He he understood Greek. He understood Hebrew. And it really upset him when he started studying the Bible and knowing all the languages like he did. And being a priest, he had access to a lot of the sacred writings. He knew it was wrong. And the, the head priest in his area, and he's the famous quote from Tyndale, the head priest in the area started yelling at him. And Tyndale says, you don't even understand the Bible. He said, by the time I'm done translating the Bible into English, a plowboy will know more about the Bible than you ever will. So poor Tyndale got himself in a lot of trouble. So he said, I'm going to publish the Bible. By then, the Gutenberg Press had come along. And now people could mass produce. That's what happened with Martin Luther. So Martin Luther's writings are getting generated, generated in Europe. England was still very Catholic. So Tyndall said, i got to get out of town if I want to do this. So Tyndale went to the continent, and they sent people out after him to kill him. And they sent hitmen after hitmen, but Tyndale had a, was always a step ahead of them. If Tyndall was in Germany, he'd speak as a German. If he was in France, he would speak as a Frenchman. If he was in Holland, he would speak Dutch. He never stood out. They could never find him and uh, because of his language skills. So the first, one of the first things he did is he went and he studied under Luther. He went and met with Martin Luther in Germany. And Luther, you think that's kind of cool. That, that, was, that was Luther's life back in the time. Everybody who, who the Holy Spirit touched with the Reformation message would come to Germany and study under Luther. And he was just one of many. But Tyndale finally said, look, I've got to get to a port town and start making this Bible and print it up and get it back to England. So he went to Antwerp which is in Holland, and Antwerp is a coastal town. And he, he, got, he got a printing press, he got a bunch of people, gave him money, and he, he translated the Bible into English with his language skills. Now Tyndale had a, one thing that you would really need. Not only did he have proficient understanding of the words he's translating from, he had proficient understanding of English. So if you want to be a great translator, you have to have both. And he had both. So now Tyndale gets out there and he starts cranking these Bibles and he's selling them for as cheap as he can and the only thing he'd do with the money is make more Bibles. So the Archbishop of Canterbury gets wind of this and um, to make a big statement, he buys all the Bibles he can and he burns them. It has a big public burning. And Tyndall laughed at him and said, well, you just bought all those Bibles, I'm just going to make more Bibles with the money you spent. So it, it, something interesting for us to understand Is political theater um, meaningless? Political theater is not anything new that we see today, and that's what that was. So, what finally happens to poor Tyndale is somebody very close to him betrays him for a lot of money, and because of the betrayal, Tyndale is condemned to death. Now, next, Tyndale is strangled and burned at the stake. You say, What's that about? If they wanted to give you, the sentence was you had to be burned at the stake. It didn't say you have to be alive when you're burned at the stake. So if they, wanna, um, if they wanted to give him a merciful, a merciful death, they would strangle you so you didn't have to burn to death. So that, I guess that was merciful for, John Tind- uh, for William Tyndale. But remember that name. Tyndale, Tyndale is the, the cornerstone and author of all English translations after him. So what happens next? You think the Catholic Church is going to take this lying down? They didn't. The Council of Trent is assembled in 1546. The Council of Trent is a Catholic assembly that says, look, we've got to deal with this Protestant stuff, and we've got to get this under control right now, and we're going to state what we believe and what we think. So in the Council of Trent, they declare the Vulgate as the exclusive authority of the Bible. For the first time ever in history they declare the Apocrypha as canon. They say, not only is the, is the Vulgate right, but all the Apocryphal books are now Scripture. They're no longer treated as just these great historical books. Nobody had done that before. The reasons the Catholic did that were twofold. There's stuff in the Apocrypha that, that helps out their theology. The Apocrypha teaches... That there's justification by works, which is completely contrary to Paul. The Apocrypha teaches that you could pray for dead people, and that God could show mercy on them after death because of your prayers. Has anybody gone to a Catholic funeral where they're praying for the guy after he's dead? You know, they 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 continue to pray. Lord, we hope you we hope you find him acceptable. We hope you find and it, it all that comes right out of the Apocrypha. It's not biblical. Now, here's something that's really interesting to know. There are 937 references and quotes to the Old Testament in the New Testament from most of the books of the Old Testament. It does not contain a single reference to an apocryphal book anywhere in the New Testament. Now, granted, there's a handful of Old Testament books that aren't in, quoted either, but a perfect example is Esther. Esther's not quoted, but Esther is rooted in 2 Samuel. Esser, is, Esser, Esser happened because of 2 Samuel. So the books that aren't quoted, except for Song of Solomon, um, the books that aren't quoted are all tied in. But the Apocrypha was never once quoted by Jesus, never once quoted by anybody, until the church, Catholic Church, way up in the 16th century, decided that it was going to add it to the Bible for political reasons. What's the next Bible that came along? 1560, the Geneva Bible. The Reformation moved to Geneva, Switzerland. Um, it started in, in Germany under Luther, but the true Reformation happened in Geneva. In Geneva, that, that's the Reformation wall in Geneva, and there's the four great studs of the Reformation right there. These, these are I don't know if you can see, but in the foreground, there's a person standing, so you can see how huge those statues are. Great, great men of the Bible, great men who, who risk their lives for, for the word. The Geneva Bible was put into English and John Calvin's brother-in-law published it in England. Guess what they used as their major source for the Geneva Bible? Tyndale. Tyndale's Bible was used as a major source for that. From 1560 forward, the Geneva Bible was the Protestant Bible, was the Bible, and it didn't have the Apocrypha. Now, the next big Bible that came along, some of you Good old Adventists will love King James Version, the Authorized Version. The Authorized Version was published in 1611, and guess what they used as their major source? Tyndale, Tyndale again, um, and that's why it was produced so fast. Now the, the the King James Version, there's they think over a billion copies are in print. There's never been a book print, more published, more printed. The King James Bible was the English Bible for the next 270 years. And because of the King James Bible, all, you know, all the reformers, everybody, but this is an interesting fact you should appreciate. It didn't overtake the Geneva, the Geneva Bible for about 30 or 40 years after it was published. The Geneva Bible is still the dominant Bible. The Geneva Bible came to America on the Mayflower with the Puritans. But at, at some point, the old King James version took over. Now, King James is, is a great translation, and again, it goes to Tindall, but it had problems. King James has a, a few problems. I'll give you a perfect example: uh, John 3:16: "For God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten's wrong." is absolutely wrong word there. The, the Greek word is monogenes. Monogenaeus means one, only, unique. It has nothing to do with begotten. Um, the King James Bible in the, in the Sixth Commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. That's wrong. It's murder. Murder is a proper word. It's a big distinction there. Because if God tells people don't kill, you know he, he lays on the law, Son, I don't kill... And then he tells Joshua, go kill all those guys. That's kind of inconsistent, right? (laughs) So killing in warfare is okay. Killing in self-defense is okay. It's murder. And as every law student will tell you, what is murder? Murder is a killing of a human by a human with malice aforethought. And so you have to have the element of murder. Murder is different than killing. So King James had its problems. And so as time went on, they finally gave it a shot in 1881. The English gave it a shot. They did the revised version. And they looked at King James and they said, let's try to clean up some of this stuff. Not to be outdone. Next one. The Americans, right about the same time, right after that, did the American Standard Version. And the American Standard Version, um, again, did the same approach. So... Those two things sat together for about 50 years, and then they came up with the Revised Standard Version in early 52. Now, uh, mind you, everybody's trying their hardest to get to be as accurate as they can, to get to be as clean as they can in the language of the Bible. So when they get to the Revised Standard Version, they're going, we, we think we got it, but we don't necessarily. But if you look at all seminaries... Up, up till recently, seminaries and, and all places that truly said the Bible would use the revised standard version. Then, in 2001, the English standard version emerged. The English standard version is the most literal translation of the Bible, English Bible, ever written. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to show you guys a short video, it's about a 10 minute video. I know I've gone long, but I had to cover 4,000 years, for crying out loud. Um, but this this talks about, th- th- this is an interview or, or a, an overview of all of the, a lot of the guys on the, the group, of, of the council who put together the English Standard Version. It's Some of the greatest men in, in the modern church, um, one in particular is a really old guy named J.I. Packer, who's been... Um, a, very influential pastor for 60 years, did tremendous things for the church, tremendous, tremendous things for the church. And I also want you guys to keep your eyes open. Each one of them will be interviewed. You'll see the seminary they're with. Um, They're from all over the English-speaking world. They're from England. They're from Wales. They're from Scotland. They're from um, New Zealand and Australia and Canada. And they all got together with one goal in mind. Let's get it right. Let's not put any of us in it. Let's get it right. So this this nice video you're going to enjoy, and I'll be back here in about 10 minutes. ...you read if you don't read the Bible at all. So, so first of all, if, if you want to get serious about Bible study, then I think you need to seriously think about which version you're reading. Now, if you're, if you're comfortable with NIV, understand that it is not as literal as it could be. And, and there's a great website I would refer you all to, which is um, biblegateway.com. It has a drop-down menu of every English translation, and you could, after you read something in question, it just go look at the ESV there and see if you have it right. Um, not that I'm biased towards one version over the other, but at any rate, um, I, I, I apologize for the length of the sermon. It was a lot of material. I know it went kind of covered a lot of time, a lot of fast, a lot of speed. But please, please, when you when you read your Bible understand we're we're looking at the word of God, and we want to get it as close to his word as he said it the first time. So thank you so much for this opportunity.